There comes a point when the right to vote requires a fight to vote. MSNBC Films presents Battleground Georgia, a story that explores the ugly history of voter suppression and how Georgia is leading the charge against it. Something has to change. The old South is being replaced by the new South. Battleground Georgia, part of the Turning Point documentary series from executive producer Trevor Noah. Sunday, May 19th at 9 p.m. Eastern on MSNBC. Welcome to The Readout, and we begin tonight with the historic case argued before the United States Supreme Court earlier today. The question before the court, can the state of Colorado keep the former president, who that state found credibly liable for inciting an insurrection, can they keep him off the ballot in November? Now, on the face of it, it seems like a pretty simple question, right? But it's a question that has never come before the court. And the debate centers on Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, which was written by Congress in 1866 and ratified in 1868. Up until this year, Section 3 was a vestigial portion of the Constitution, and the questions it raised were theoretical. It was written at the end of the Civil War as the country was trying to reconcile the bitterly divided factions from the North and the South, including those who had waged war against the United States, many of whom were still bitter about the loss. Some of their descendants still are. At that time, the 14th Amendment, which was a radical text and a dramatic departure from previous amendments, sought to bring justice to millions of formerly enslaved black Americans and to ensure that the formerly elected officials who waged war against the United States would not be allowed to serve in elected office again. That is the purpose of Section 3. Now, knowing all that, At issue today before the court were some key questions. One, do states have the right to enforce Section 3 or can only Congress do that? Two, did the drafters intend to include presidents and vice presidents when they drafted this punishment? And three, is this section self-executing, which is technical jargon for this thing goes into effect without any other mechanism, such as an act of Congress? Trump's lawyer, Jonathan Mitchell, who happens to be the guy who wrote the Texas abortion bounty law, kept referring to something known as the Griffin case. What is the Griffin case, you ask? Well, if you've read any recent stories about the 14th Amendment, it's possible you've heard of someone named Coy Griffin. He was the Cowboys for Trump guy who was arrested for participating in January 6th and got booted from office under Section 3. It's a fairly straightforward parallel to Donald Trump. But in fact, that is not the Griffin case discussed today. The reference by Trump's lawyer to help support his argument was to a far more distant historical story, a flawed case from 1869. It's actually a fascinating story. It centers on Chief Justice Salmon P. Chase, the guy right there. You see, back in 1869, Chief Justice Chase, who was appointed by Abraham Lincoln, made a ruling as a traveling circuit court judge on what Section 3 could and could not do. In the 1869 Griffin case, which was covered by the New York Times, Chase found that it was infeasible to determine what individuals are embraced by disqualification without due process prescribed by Congress, and that the language itself was not self-executing. These are two key points that help Trump's current case, right, and are the same points his lawyer Jonathan Mitchell made. Here's the problem with Chase's lower court ruling. His position directly contradicted his own previous opinion, which came a year earlier and involved Jefferson Davis, the first and only Confederate president who was tried for treason. You see, Chase was one of two justices overseeing that civil trial. And he just so happened to discreetly suggest to Davis's lawyers that they could short circuit the trial by claiming that Davis could not be tried for treason because he was already disqualified upon the ratification of the 14th Amendment, which his lawyers argued was self-executing. Chase appeared to embrace that argument, which is the opposite of a ruling he would make a year later. These diverging decisions from the same justice are illogical and can't be explained, For today's purpose, the Griffin case served as a convenient case for Trump's lawyers because they could point to it as de facto precedent and giving friendly justices and convenient off-ramp. 
So under Griffin's case, which we believe is correctly decided, the Anderson litigants disagree with us on that point. But if this court were to adhere to the holding of Griffin's case, there would not be any role for the states in enforcing Section 3 unless Congress were to enact a statute that gives them that authority. So you're relying on a non-presidential case by a justice who later takes back what he said. But the key point with Griffin's case and why it's an important precedent, despite everything Your Honor said, it is not a precedent of this court. But Griffin's case provided the backdrop against which Congress legislated the Enforcement Act of 1870 when it first provided an enforcement mechanism for Section 3. Yeah, and it did away with it later. It did away with it later. But But, but that has nothing to say with respect to what Section 3 means. And it was off to the races for Mr. Mitchell after that. The lawyer got a receptive audience from the majority conservative justices who seemed highly skeptical of Colorado's case. And at times, they seemed to ask leading questions to help make Trump's case. Justice Alito. Is there any history of states using Section 3 as a way to bar federal office holders? Not that I'm aware, Justice Alito. I appreciate that response. Is, Is there anything in the original drafting history discussion that you think illuminates why that distinction would carry such profound weight? Not of which we're aware. So these are textual inferences that we're drawing. It's a precedent, although not binding. But your point then is it's reinforced because Congress itself relies on that precedent in the Enforcement Act of 1870 and forms the backdrop uh, against which Congress does legislate. And then as Justice Alito says, the historical practice for 155 years has been that that's the way it's gone. There hasn't there haven't been state attempts to enforce disqualification under Section 3 against federal officers in the years since. So whether right. that's a Federalist 37 liquidation argument, it all reinforces uh, what happened back in 1868, 1869, and 1870. All right. You want to add to that, alter that? No, I think that's exactly right. And- Bottom line, <laughs> the majority of the justices seemed inclined to keep Trump on the ballot. And it wasn't just the members of the conservative majority who seemed dubious. The liberal justices had their fair share of tough questions, too. And joining me now is Congressman Jamie Raskin, a former member of the January 6th Select Committee. And we always like to point out a constitutional scholar in his own right. Um, so, Congressman, I mean, in watching it myself, I it felt to me like the justices collectively had already kind of concluded that they want to keep Trump on the ballot. And this was a search for the rationale as to why. Did it feel that way to you? Yeah, I think a majority of them certainly came in with their minds totally made up, although a lot of them are seeking to hang their hat on a different hook. Some of them like the idea that the president isn't even covered by Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, which I think the vast majority of the justices reject. Others were congregating around this argument that you were just discussing, that under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, Congress needs to act and the state's don't have the power themselves to enforce the Constitution, which is a somewhat weird doctrine, because under the Supremacy Clause, the Constitution governs every part of our governmental system, the federal courts, the state courts, the federal uh, Congress, the state legislatures, and so on. Uh, and nonetheless, they uh, go- are going back uh, to this Justice Chase opinion uh, in the Griffin decision. And I shouldn't really say Justice Chase, which is what the Supreme Court justices were saying today, because he wasn't acting as a Supreme Court justice. He was acting as what we would call a circuit court judge. He just rendered a decision on his own, which totally contradicted <laughs> the position he had taken just a year earlier in the Jefferson Davis treason trial. And there he was advancing the opinion that Um, Why doesn't Jefferson Davis try to get off by saying he can't be prosecuted and convicted for treason because it would constitute double jeopardy because he's already been excluded from serving as president by Section 3 of the 14th Amendment? As a legal argument, that's totally wrong, of course, because Section 3 of the 14th Amendment is a civil disqualification which can be removed by Congress ultimately. It's not criminal, so there's no double jeopardy. And that was perfectly clear according to the framers of the Constitution. In any event, 
Um, all of it is irrelevant because it's not a binding Supreme Court opinion. So really, they're looking at it afresh. And a lot of them seem to like the argument that Congress needs to act. It was only at the very end of the oral arguments today that people began to focus on what the practical implications of that are. It basically means that they're going to let somebody go forward on the ballot who may indeed be or may likely be an insurrectionist who participated in insurrection, let it go all the way through the various states and get back to, yes, January 6th, in this case, 2025. And at that point, if God forbid, a thousand times, Donald Trump were to be winning by one or two electoral college votes. It would be up to the new Congress to decide whether or not he was an insurrectionist barred from holding office rather than running from office, which is what their point is. And if you want to talk about a testy, potentially violent and explosive encounter on the floor of the House of Representatives, the Supreme Court is basically choreographing it. Right. And, and for the audience to, to, to understand what that what that means, that would mean Mike Johnson, whose majority whip can't count enough for them to pull off the impeachment of Secretary Mayorkas, even though they desperately want to do that. That guy who's barely hanging on to his speakership, that House of Representatives would have to decide. I mean, let's go through some of these because some of them made no sense. There was the question of the self-executing part, meaning, to your point, what they're saying is somebody who didn't meet the age qualification, for instance, could run. They just couldn't serve unless it was remedied by the time they become president. He was making that argument. Well, they might become of age by the time they actually hold the office or somebody who didn't live in the state. Well, they didn't live in the state, but then they move there. And then when they hold the office, then they're qualified. In the case of an insurrection, though, you know, this is somebody who actually attempted to halt the peaceful transfer of power. They would get to go all the way through the process of having enough electoral college votes. And then on January 6th, they would have to get a waiver from Congress that says, it's all right, man, you can go ahead and be president, right? That's what you're explaining. And That's how- right. And it was yeah. galling indeed to, to see Justice Kavanaugh trying to invoke democracy <laughs> as a value on the side of Donald Trump when Donald Trump and his followers tried to overthrow our constitutional democracy on January 6th. Section three of the 14th Amendment is all about protecting democracy against those who have proven their propensity to use violence and backroom machinations to try to overthrow the constitutional order, which is precisely what happened on January 6th. But just to understand um, how uh, tortured their argument was, at least as I see it, um, the Trump's lawyers weren't saying that um, Trump can't be barred from holding office. They were just saying he can't be barred from running for right. office. Why? Because the Congress might be able to use its authority uh, by a two-thirds vote to remove the disqualification for him being an insurrectionist. Now, as a practical matter, that will never happen. I can guarantee you, you are not going to have any Democrats, much less 75 or 100 Democrats voting to remove that disqualification. But as a legal matter, it's a clever argument. And I was impressed that they were making it. It does show how desperate they are, that that's what it's down to. But as a legal argument, I think you can match that hypothetical with another hypothetical, which is if hypothetically Congress were to remove the two-thirds um disqualification after Trump has been barred from the ballot in Colorado. Nonetheless, the Colorado legislature could then appoint the electors for him. So I would meet their extravagant hypothetical with another hypothetical, uh, which is the Colorado legislature could go ahead and appoint him uh, the electors that would vote for him, or indeed the Electoral College itself could use their reflective, deliberative uh, capacity just to choose him as the president. So, you know, th- there's a lot of complications because of the Electoral College, but the bottom line is the Supreme Court has always looked at the electoral system uh, as a practical matter. And as a practical matter, Colorado has been doing the right thing, but this court clearly doesn't want to do the right thing. And so they're going to throw it back to Congress. Nothing is going to happen until potentially January 6th, unless Donald Trump is convicted in on some of the 91 federal criminal offenses that are outstanding against him in court.
And a statute did come up, speaking of conviction, because there was a, a, a seeming attempt to say, is there some other remedy other than barring him from the ballot, or should there have been another remedy? There is a, a, a law, U.S. Code uh, 2383, and it is actually the, the, the statute about insurrection. Whoever incites, sets on foot, assists, or engages in any rebellion or insurrection against the authority of the United States or the laws thereof, or give aid or comfort thereto, shall be fined under the title and imprisoned not more than 10 years or both, and this is the important part, shall be incapable of holding any office under the United States. In your view, does that mean that it might have been a mistake for Jack Smith to not charge him with insurrection? You were an impeachment manager. Donald Trump was impeached for attempting insurrection. Had he been charged and was facing charges of insurrection, might Colorado's lawyers gone in with a stronger argument saying this man is being charged with insurrection? Well, the House of Representatives um, did impeach uh, Donald Trump for inciting an insurrection. Yeah. And although Trump beat the constitutional spread in the Senate, there was still a majority vote, 57 to 43, finding that he had engaged in uh, insurrection within its constitutional meaning, right. within, um, you know, uh, akin to Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. The statute that was discussed in the court today and that you just put up on the screen was actually passed seven years before Section 3 of the 14th Amendment was written. So obviously the Constitution is supreme to statute, and I would think that the constitutional language is paramount to it. So there's a constitutional definition of insurrection, and there, then there's that older statutory definition, whatever it is. But we know there have been lots of people who've been convicted of seditious conspiracy yeah. in the events of January 6th, and that means conspiracy to overthrow or put down the government of the United States, which I would say is completely consistent with uh, the Section 3 of the 14th Amendment definition. Yeah. It is. Uh, it was fascinating to listen to. Uh, it, it didn't give me a lot of hope uh, that it's good, that Colorado will prevail. But it's always, always of great value to our audience to be able to listen to you explain these things. We will always appreciate you. Congressman Jamie Raskin, thank you. And up next on the readout, cheers. And up next on the readout, the conservative justices seem poised to rule that states states are not allowed to enforce the ban on insurrectionists running for office, which raises the question. So who is? Colorado Secretary of State Jenna Griswold joins me next. Maybe she can help make some sense of all of it. The readout continues after this. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. One of the prevailing questions from the Supreme Court justices today was whether upholding Colorado's decision to disqualify Donald Trump from the ballot would ultimately give an unwarranted amount of power to a single state to decide who gets to be president of the United States. Why should a single state have the ability to make this determination, not only for their own citizens, but for the rest of the nation? Because Article 2 gives them the power to, to appoint their own electors as they see fit. If this court affirms the decision below, determining that President Trump is ineligible to be president, other states would still have to determine what effect that would have on their own state's law and state procedure. Well, I mean, if we, if we affirmed and we said he was ineligible to be president, yes, maybe some states would say, well, you know, we're going to keep him on the ballot anyway. But I mean, really, it's going to have, as Justice Kagan said, the effect of Colorado deciding. And it's true. 
Joining me now is Colorado Secretary of State Jenna Griswold. She was represented today by Colorado's Solicitor General, Shannon Stevenson, who argued before the Supreme Court. Thank you for being here, Secretary Griswold. So I'll let you answer that question, um, because it did seem that some of the justices had it. Why should Colorado get to decide who can be president of the United States for all the states? Uh, well, first off, I, I don't think that that necessarily would play out like that. But if it did, ultimately, it's up to states how they choose to appoint the electors to the Electoral College. Uh, and it's also up to states, uh, as far as we know, as of now, to be able to have ineligible people kept off their ballots. Uh, you know, one of the things that really was striking to me about the court's argument is that if they are so focused on political outcomes, mm. if they're so focused on one state having the ability to swing a presidential election, well, why don't they look towards Georgia and their voter suppression laws? Why don't they look at the states that are trying to swing elections by suppressing the vote? Uh, so ultimately, I, I think um, that line of, of uh, argument is is not founded in the Constitution, but we'll see what the United States Supreme Court decides. It's such a good question. I'd love to ask John Roberts, who, since he was a young lawyer in the Reagan administration, has been opposed to the Voting Rights Act. So I bet they'd have a fascinating answer, but it's a good point. <laughs> I mean, the thing is, the, 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 what did you make of the part of the of the debate that talked about other forms of ineligibility? If somebody from uh, that was born outside the United States said, I want to be on the ballot, could you disqualify, could they be disqualified from being on the ballot? If somebody was under the required age constitutionally, um, or if someone didn't even live in Colorado, could 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 you all exclude them? What did you make of that part of the argument? Because it didn't seem clear. It seemed almost as if the argument from Trump's lawyers was whoever wanted to run, right, in theory could at least run and then it would be resolved later if they win. I would say the Trump attorneys went even further. Um, not only was the argument that all ineligible people should be able to be on the ballot, they went so far as to argue that every insurrectionist has the right to be on the ballot. And even if Trump was found guilty under criminal insurrection, he could still be on the ballot in president because presidential immunity. So it's just one more, uh, one more of the same playbook from Donald Trump. He refuses to recognize what he did. What he did was incite a violent mob, caused congressmen to run in fear of their lives and assault the Constitution in an insurrection. Uh, and he continues to say, even if he is guilty of the insurrection of other crimes, well, it's fine because the laws and the Constitution just don't apply to him. Uh, so I sure hope that the United States Supreme Court sees through the Trump mob boss mentality and makes him face conse the consequences for his actions. In the, under the argument, you know, you're an attorney, so you can explain this. Under the argument that was made today, could a Jefferson Davis, somebody who had to your point, committed insurrection, then turn around and run. Because it, it wasn't clear to me who, in their mind, could not be on the ballot. Well, I, th I think just to take one step back, we shouldn't read too much into the questions the justices are asking. Uh, you know, in the Colorado Supreme Court, some of the justices who ended up disqualifying President Trump from the ballot were asking pretty aggressive questions that would lead you to think that they were on the other side. Uh, so I, I do think it's, it's premature. Mm -hmm. uh, but part of this is it's such an unprecedented situation because it was literally quite some time since the Civil War that we had an insurrection like this. Yeah. Donald Trump broke the law. He needs to face consequences for everything he did to try to steal the presidential election, which was not just the insurrection. Let me let me play one soundbite for you. This is Chief Justice Roberts on because the other thing they seem to be concerned about, as you pointed out, were the political consequences of taking Donald Trump off the ballot. Take a listen. I would expect that uh, you know, a goodly number of states will say, uh, whoever the Democratic candidate is, you're off the ballot, and others, uh, the, for the Republican candidate, you're off the ballot, and it'll come down to just a handful of states that are going to decide the presidential election. That's a pretty daunting consequence. 
Well, certainly, Your Honor, the fact that there are potential frivolous applications of a constitutional provision isn't a reason. Well, no, hold on. I mean, you might think they're frivolous, but probably the people who are bringing them may not think they're frivolous. Is that something we should consider and be concerned about? Well, I, I guess the United States Supreme Court is, um, but I personally do not think that far-right Republican witch hunts are a reason to not apply the Constitution to Trump's action in the insurrection. Uh, you know, there can be bad political actors that uh, accuse this, that, and the other, but we have a judicial system. Uh, and just like in Colorado, uh, Donald Trump had a five-day trial. He had an appeals process to the Colorado Supreme Court and then ultimately to the United States Supreme Court. Uh, this, this case isn't based on political accusation. It's based on real fact, testimony, witnesses, and a judicial proceeding. Uh, so I, I sure hope the court does not focus his decision on that because temper tantrums from a political party is not good reasoning uh, to not enforce the law and protect the nation from an oath-breaking insurrectionist. Colorado Secretary of State Jenna Griswold, thank you. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Cheers. And up next, Justice Clarence Thomas took the lead in questioning the attorneys today under a cloud of ethics scandals and the enduring question of whether he should have recused himself entirely due to his wife's vocal support of Trump's big insurrectionist lie. We'll be right back. Hi, everyone. It's Katie Fang. Did you know my weekly show on MSNBC is now available as a podcast? With my decades of experience as a trial lawyer, you'll get an insider's perspective on all things legal. At a time when politics and the law are inextricably intertwined, my guests and I break down what's next and why it matters, both inside and outside the courtroom. Search for The Katie Fang Show wherever you're listening and follow. Alpha One Niner, commence Wi-Fi device checklist. Laptops, on. TVs, streaming. Game console, consoling. Smart thermostat, set for cuddle time. Doorbell camera, oh, my package is here. Fast, reliable, able to power tons of devices inside your home at once. All systems go, you are clear for takeoff. This is Xfinity Internet, Wi-Fi built to wow. And watch the short film, The Aviators. Now playing at Xfinity.com. Restrictions apply, actual speeds vary and are not guaranteed. We have breaking news in just the last few minutes from our White House team. President Biden will deliver remarks from the diplomatic reception room at 7.45 p.m. tonight. And we'll, of course, bring that to you live. And joining me now is Democratic Senator Sheldon Whitehouse of Rhode Island. Uh, Senator, before I get to the Supreme Court uh, goings on today, I just want to get your comment on this, uh, this special counsel report that I'm holding in my hot little hands here uh, about the Biden classified documents situation, their non prosecution decision. Your thoughts? Well, the uh, Department of Justice did what it should do, which is to appoint a special prosecutor, a special counsel to look into the matter. Special counsel is independent, looked into the matter, decided there is nothing to prosecute. As far as I'm concerned, that settles the question. Well, we will hear what the president has to say about it uh, a little bit later on in the hour. But I do want to get to this this hearing today. It was fascinating to listen to. And just to my ear, just listening to it uh, as these oral arguments were made, it was striking to me to hear the first voice uh, in each of the segments and sessions being uh, Justice Clarence Thomas. He is the senior most judge, which is for our audience why he was allowed to speak first each time. So he gets that deference. But uh, I think we all remember that his wife, Jenny Thomas, was materially involved in the insurrection. She sent multiple emails to Mark Meadows. She was a huge advocate of Donald Trump remaining in power after losing the election. I could go on and on and on. These guys did sign uh, this brand new ethics, um, you know, their, their new, their sort of new ethics guidelines. What do you make of the fact that he did not recuse? Well, let's start with the fact that the failure to recuse isn't just an ethics violation, it's a violation of law. Congress passed a law requiring recusal in certain circumstances. So this isn't just something within the judicial branch that's just a matter of, you know, judicial propriety. It's lawbreaking to sit on a case where you don't belong. And with respect to Thomas, this is the third time 
he has sat on and decided a case related to the insurrection, sat on the case of the January 6th commission's access to records, which might well have revealed the records of his wife's contacts with the Trump chief of staff. He sat on the Arizona uh, election investigation case uh, after his wife was involved with calling into Arizona to ask to have ballots overturned. And now he's involved in this case. And the problem across all three of those cases is we don't know what the facts are. In any other proceeding, you'd have to do some sort of fact finding. You'd know what his wife did, what he knew, when he knew it. And all of that is simply not present. This Supreme Court hides behind a cloud of uh, obscurity with respect to the facts. And that allows a judge like Thomas to make his own decision without anybody being able to check on him and say, well, actually, you know, on those facts, that's not right. You start with fact-finding in any legal manner, and the court refuses to allow fact-finding. Right. I mean, it, it just was sort of striking to see, you know, you, you call them a Leo Six, if you want, Leonard Leo's pals there. I mean, you have Samuel yeah. Alito arguing across the room from the guy who wrote the bounty hunter bill in Texas, his, con, you know, his co-conspirator in trying to deprive women of rights over their own bodies. You've got the, uh, you know, and he's also another uh, vacation, uh, expensive vacation fan. You've got three people who sat on the who were worked for George W. Bush in the Bush v. Gore case, including Chief Justice Roberts, uh, Amy Coney Barrett and Kavanaugh being the other two, arguing that one state shouldn't get to decide who the president is. Hello. That was the case y'all worked on um, yeah. in Bush v. Gore. They let Florida decide. They, they decided it for Florida. Correct. One state. Correct. And so it just I wonder if we're at a point now where the Supreme Court's reputation is so desiccated that a you know ruling to keep Trump on the ballot, which seems to me to be their sort of political decision that they want to make, will just feel kind of grimy to a lot of Americans. I think it will. And it's not just the Supreme Court as an institution. It's also the uh, principles that they purport to champion. If you listen to the argument, the questions were all about, well, what happens if and what are the political outcomes? What are the results? What are the policy outcomes? How do we balance the interests here? Those are all considerations that they pretend to scorn. They pretend to be plain language folks, strict constructionists, originalists, until plain language, strict construction and originalism would lead them to throw Trump off the ballot in Colorado. And then suddenly all the documents that they've long purported to scorn are the ones that are driving their questioning. And I think the other piece of it is this idea of attempting to force Congress to say that Section 3, number one, didn't apply to a president, meaning it didn't apply to like uh, like somebody, if Jefferson Davis decided he wanted to be president of the United States, right? It didn't apply to a president. It didn't apply to Trump because he wasn't an elected official before. So the oath he took kind of didn't count. It was like a whoopsie kind of uh, an oath. The, all of the arguments to me see, felt so tortured. But the one that was the most <clears throat> sort of eye-popping is that this Congress, this House of Representatives, specifically Mike Johnson's House of Representatives, that they ought to decide whether he's eligible if he actually wins. So we would go to another January 6th, but this time it would be Mike Johnson's House deciding if Donald Trump could be president. Your thoughts? Well, there is a bit of a gap in the Article 3 of the 14th Amendment about who actually gets to decide. But into that gap, we fill the fact that elections are decided by states. That's why we have state election officials. That's why... We have different state laws covering uh, elections. We have different candidate requirements covering elections. And it's a state official that says, let's say you try to run for a third term as president. <laughs> the Constitution says you can't. The state official says you can't do that. You don't wait for Congress to say you can't do that. The ballot in the state is the function of the state to determine. So, you know, back to my point about how plain language, strict construction and orig originalism all got thrown into the can in this argument. Yeah. How about states' rights? <laughs> they lived by states' rights as a doctrine for so long. And now, no, 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 no. Congress has to decide 
even though every element of the ballot is really settled on by the states and state election officials. Yeah. One wonders what might happen if, let's say, Arnold Schwarzenegger decide, OK, you know what? YOLO. Let me go ahead and try to run and see if California can keep me off the ballot. You know, I, I, it's like I, anyway, I'm going to leave it there. Senator Sheldon Whitehouse, always a pleasure. Good being with you. Thank you very much. All right, joining me now is Katie Fang, trial attorney and host of The Katie Fang Show, Michael Steele, former RNC chair and co-host of The Weekend, and David K. Johnson, author of The Big Cheat and founder of DCReport.org. I'm going to let each of you respond to what happened today, Katie Fang. You were in uh, the, the, the room where it happened. Talk about what you expect to happen. It felt to me like the justices had already decided to keep him on the ballot, just looking for a reason why. Your thoughts? Yeah, and I think we all know where it's going to go, which is why I think the conversation you just had with Sheldon Whitehouse is so important, Joy, because I think we need to move beyond now to a conversation about the Electoral College. Why? Because Article 2, Section 1 of the United States Constitution allows Colorado to do what it does, to decide how to select its presidential electors. Brett Kavanaugh conveniently and hypocritically today waxed about disenfranchisement of voters, but that is exactly what SCOTUS did in Bush v. Gore in 2000 when it told the Florida Supreme Court that it couldn't decide how to do its state's election in terms of a presidential election. Bush v. Gore federalized a presidential election in violation of the United States Constitution. That is why Al Gore lost, because Bush got the Electoral College votes. The Electoral College is disenfranchising the voters. If you truly want to do what Brett Kavanaugh says, which is, quote, one person, one vote under equal protection, then you got to have a popular vote. Because what's happening is they're federalizing elections through what happened today in the Colorado case. States should have states' rights. It works for abortion, right? Yeah, hey, let's take abortion back to the states. Yeah. But when it comes to not having Trump on the ballot, if you want to have a patchwork result, that's exactly what the Constitution contemplated. Enjoy my last word, is that it's what the Constitution wants. If you don't like it, amend the Constitution and get rid of the Electoral College. That wasn't just a last word. That was a word. OK, that was a word, Michael Steele. I'm going to go to you on that, right? Because they seem to love the states deciding whether a woman has to give birth. But on this, they're saying, yeah, we want the Congress to do that. It feels like situational originalism to me. What do, did, did you hear today? It is situational originalism uh, and, and so forth. I want to applaud my friend, my dear friend, Katie Fang, for making the case for the national popular vote. Thank you so much, Katie, because that's exactly the space we need to move into. Um, and there's a lot around that. But unpacking today, my quick takeaway uh, was really, really rested on a Justice Katana. Uh, Katanji uh, Brown Jackson, because at the end of the day, she went to a space that um, that I found interesting, where she was making the case that Trump's lawyer could not make or was making an artfully. And, and I think it really speaks to the reality that the justices do not want to be in a position yeah. where they're telling the states uh, that they can't they have to kick someone off a ballot. Yeah. Either a while voting is taking place or b with voting yet to come. Right. So I think at the end of the day, my takeaway is a nine zero decision against Colorado in this matter. I, I'm going to give you very, very short time, David K. Johnson, because we have to go to Mike Memoli. But very quickly, your take. Um, I think that not only are we going to see Donald on all the different ballots, but we really do need to start a discussion about updating the Constitution in a number of areas, including the Electoral College, and pay close attention to Judge Jackson, the smartest, savviest thinker on the Supreme Court. I uh, concur with that. Let's bring in, thank you all very much. Let's bring in NBC News White House correspondent Mike Memoli. What do we know about this press conference, Mike? Well, Joy, I think it's clear that this uh, report from special counsel Her landed like a bombshell for a lot of Democrats who were already plenty nervous about President Biden and his standing as we begin this election year. And while we've already heard from the president today, he did speak at the top of his remarks to House Democrats today about this report, about its findings. It's clear that the president in the White House felt he needed to do some more as quickly as possible to reassure not just his party, but the American people uh, about what some of the uh, contents of this report were. I think specifically the comments, as Special Counsel Hurt puts it, about the president being elderly, about the fact that he was so forgetful in some of the can, can, can uh, I just, interview. Let me, let me hold you right there. I just want to read this for our audience because I highlighted this as well. This is on page six of this ruling. It said, we have considered that at trial, Mr. Biden would likely present himself to a jury as he did during our interview of him as a sympathetic, well-meaning, elderly man with a poor memory. That is what you are referring to, correct? 
That's exactly right, Joy. And, and that, we know, have, has been at the heart of concerns Democrats have about the president's continued candidacy, the age issue. And so more than anything having to do with law or legal theory or whether the president did things with classified documents that he should not have been doing, this is perhaps the most damning thing politically that Democrats are worried about tonight. And all week, Joy, it's really interesting. The president, the White House all week had been teasing off the record on background the idea that he might take questions. You'll remember President Biden himself, when he did take a question or two, talking to reporters on Tuesday, indicated that he would speak to reporters on Thursday. We had been poised all week, Joy, for a potential news conference. And so the one thing I'm going to be looking for very closely is that beyond what the president says today, uh, tonight, does he take an opportunity to answer questions? Because whenever the president, and I've covered him a long time, has been asked through the 2020 campaign or since he's been in office about questions about his age, mm -hmm. for a long time, his answer was simply watch me. And for a lot of Democrats, that's been exactly why they're so nervous, is they haven't necessarily seen uh, the kind of president willing to take the case, able to take the case to the country against Donald Trump in the way that they feel that he needs to. We've seen him come off so far, starting the year with some pretty strong speeches, the Valley Forge speech, the event he did on abortion rights with Vice President Harris, some of the campaign stops he's made since then. But they, they are certainly looking for, especially given the damning report as it came out today, uh, some reassurance. And I think that's the goal of the White House advising this event on very short notice and likely potentially looking for an opportunity for the president to take some questions from reporters as quickly as possible. Yeah, absolutely. Let me, let me, let me so stay with this, me, me, please, Mike, if you could. I want to bring back my panel. Michael Steele, I do want to go to you uh, on the politics of this. That line on page six feels uh, politically like a gift uh, to Donald Trump and Republicans. Uh, what do you make of the timing uh, of this information and the content? So let's just thank God this is not October, um, because if it were, it would be, uh, you know, a Comey moment uh, in the Hillary Clinton uh, uh, situation where you the justice side of the, the three branches kind of weighs in. So it is weighty. It is damning. Um, and it's going to be important for the president to uh, sort of clean that up for himself uh, and for his presidential narrative, because you have this other branch now sort of weighing in and saying, yeah, he's sympathetic because he's forgetful. But, you know, Katie Fang, I, I, I would be remiss not to point out that what's not in here is evidence or any uh, allegation that Joe Biden hid documents in his basement, hid documents in his house or changed the locks on a room so that he could hide documents even from his own lawyers or refuse to give them back. I think that's important to know. That is the only important information to know. Special counsel appointment to investigate a crime, if any. The only relevant portion of that ridiculously long, completely irrelevant report is the fact that there was no intent by President Joe Biden to commit a crime versus what we do know is evidence of Donald Trump's criminal intent to be able to dis, uh, f commit fraud, to, to, you know, make sure that he kept these classified documents to mishandle classified information. The fact that special counsel her added all of this irrelevant stuff is partisan, it's hackery, and it's completely irrelevant, and it should have been stricken, frankly. I understand transparency, and I laud the president for making sure that it came out, and Merrick Garland to whatever extent I can. But <laughs> the only relevant point, Joy, is the intent, and that's the only part of it that we should be focusing on. Yeah, the, the, the Merrick Garland, yeah. to the greatest extent we can, uh, David K. Johnston, I think is relevant. Because what Donald Trump has enjoyed throughout his time in the public, uh, in public life is tremendous luck with timing, right? He gets the apprentice job when he's broke. His, it, it covers over his terrible stretch as a businessman and his failures. And now he gets this at a time when he's accused of crime. Biden is accused of being old. Donald has, has benefited beyond belief from timing issues, from the James Comey matters, uh, to many others, and many people have forgotten numerous other bad things Donald Trump has done. One thing that we should keep in mind, though, about this report is that 
Donald Trump did more than just take all these documents. He showed them to people. We have video and our audio tape of him talking about classified documents. We have the Australian businessman with whom he shared one of our most deeply guarded secrets about our nuclear submarines, secrets we spent tens of billions of dollars developing. And if you think that that's all Donald did, the two examples that we know about, you know, you're not thinking about who Donald is. There's no muffler on his mouth. He shoots it off all the time. In all likelihood, he has done things that deeply compromise our national security that we're never going to hear about in our lifetimes because they damaged our national security. And Katie, let me go back to you on that, because there is, you know, out there, there are allegations in this report that President Biden did share or show uh, or at least share information from these classified documents. But it was with his ghostwriter that apparently he viewed himself as an historic figure, as every politician does with a little ego and was writing a book. And that when he's writing a book, he wanted to write about things like his opposition uh, to a surge in Afghanistan and his belief yeah. that we should end that war. And that that is why he shared them. He wasn't sharing them with random party guests at Mar-a-Lago, for instance. But the report also shows that there is zero mention of that classified information in any of the books and any of Correct. the writings. And there was zero corroborating evidence that that actually happened, that Joe Biden actually shared that information with the ghostwriter. And that is what we have to kind of hang our hat on. Right. It is not just was there evidence. It's was there evidence that was corroborated in some way? And Joe Biden mentioning it, but maybe it not happening is yeah. really the case here. And that's what we need to remember. There had to have been evidence of a crime. Donald Trump has plenty of it, but there's none of that for Joe Biden. And let me go to you, though, Michael Steele, because you and I both know just let's talk about the raw politics of it. You know, out in yeah. these streets and in the barbershop, people are saying, well, how come Biden doesn't get prosecuted for it? And Trump does. And, and there is that sense among some regular folks out there that are not necessarily paying attention to the minutia of it, that, you know, they feel that it's a double standard. And that's something that Trump can exploit. That is that is something that Trump will exploit. It is something that he will uh, exploit cynically. And I, I, I think to to both points made that, you know, this is the, the you have the facts uh, of what this report lays out. You're going to have the president address probably a lot of the aspects of that. But then you get to the raw politics of it, and that's where all the other organs within the democratic uh, infrastructure, within the uh, you know the democracy space, who are supporting a Joe Biden candidacy because the other guy is such a big threat, will have to go in and make sure that the clarifying points are made here, uh, aligned with what Katie uh, has said, for example, that makes the case. That's why it's important that this is happening in February. And not in October. Yeah. Uh, and, and so you have the runway now, probably three weeks, two weeks where this is going to bubble and make some noise. Um, will be talked about certainly on Fox that by the time you get to summer and into the fall, this storyline, because there will be so many other greater storylines that will suppress it and, and diminish it, will become the important factor. If we're in October, it's a different conversation because that will leave an imprint on the voters' mind as they go to the ballot box yeah. for a general election. And, and I mean, and we say we're, we're talking about all this, David, you know, in the context of the Supreme Court deciding whether Trump can be on that ballot at all. And we assume that he will. Um, but, you know, it, there does seem to be a really strange juxtaposition here. You know, there is the question of whether or not you were careless in leaving notes in your garage because you're writing a book and whether you tried to overthrow the government and you tried to implement a coup. And it is sort of a wild time to be alive that these two things are sort of submitted as parallels to the American people. Well, would the Joe Biden had not done this, even though he was using it basically as a memory aid to work on this book about his career. But what the Biden administration needs to do is get this all out, take your your uh, hits for it, and then start working on the economy, the incredible success we're having with the economy. That's what they need to do. Get this behind him. Get onto your own agenda. And don't let Donald Trump put you on the defensive. Stay on the offense. And let me Joy. go back to you, Katie, about the timing. It is interesting. But what do you make of it? 
Well, I was going to say two words. Mike Pence. Is everybody forgetting Mike <laughs> yeah. Pence? Mike Pence yeah. investigated, wasn't indicted, wasn't, you know, he didn't get charged. That's the answer to any yeah. of those conversations. Well, what is this double standard? Mike Pence yeah. also did not commit a crime, was not charged for it. And because of that, it, it's what's good for the goose is good for the gander. I mean, that is why justice is supposed to be blind. But the timing of it is obviously suspect, right? We always kind of have to wonder why now. Why in this manner? But I think what's amazing, Joy, is what's happening is we want to preserve the institutions as much as we can because the normalization of Trump Mm -hmm. has become so prevalent so that when we see a rule of law institution like where we want to make sure transparency, how do you not have transparency when it comes to justice? You have to have it no matter if you're a Democrat or a Republican. Mm -hmm. And that is why we get freaked out when we have this kind of transparency. And we have to be reminded President Joe Biden is an institutionalist. He is a rule of law president. He wants to err on the side of making sure that America knows what is going on versus the obfuscation, the hiding, the trickery, the criming that Donald Trump tried to normalize through his yeah. administration and his presidency, which is why, again, I still go back to Mike Pence. You want to have a conversation? Let's talk about Mike Pence not getting charged. Hey, Joy, uh, let me go back to really quickly. I, I apologize. I have to apologize. We have a two minute warning. So I do want to go back just to Mike. Really- go quickly, quickly. Now, I can just say real quick to, to really kind of put a pin on both what David and, and Katie have both said. Yeah. Being old is not a crime. No, it's not. What Donald Amen. Trump did with classified documents is. Indeed. And that's Doc. all the there, American to understand. Uh, indeed. Amen. Let's go to Mike Memoli really quickly. What are we expecting to hear? Uh, we've heard a lot of analysis here. What do we actually expect to hear from the president? Well, of course, White House officials are being very guarded about what to expect from the president. We do have indication, though, that these will be brief remarks. And again, I think the thing to watch is, is this an opportunity for the president to take some questions? I think that would be the uh, most fulsome answer he could give to these charges, because uh, that is an opportunity. And as we see, the the president's advisors are now filling into the room. So Mm -hmm. it's only a matter of time here uh, for the president to address some of these issues head on. And for all the focus on the age issue and some of the comments from the special counsel in this report, which obviously are significant. There are also questions to be asked about the handling of classified documents uh, because it is clear in the way that the her report extensively lays out the way in which this, as vice president, Joe Biden was keeping extensive note taking uh, notes of every kind of meeting he was in, his interactions with other officials, his lunches with President Obama. We remember, of course, they had weekly lunches. And so while the the special counsel made the decision not to ultimately bring charges in this case, the fact that Biden was recorded by uh, his ghostwriter, for instance, acknowledging uh, uh, six years ago, right after he had left office, that he knew he had retained some of these documents in his possession, I think are also areas where I would be, if I was in the room, potentially interested in asking a question about some of the developments today. I I think it's also worth noting, Joy, the ways in which we've already heard pushback from the White House, from uh, the president's lawyers and from other Democrats, and that we may hear again from President Biden, especially the way in which they thought the special counsel went way beyond his skis here uh, in commenting on the president's age, Mm. commenting, passing judgment on memory lapses when President Biden was doing this in an interview, by the way, within a a day of uh, Hamas attacking Israel uh, and all that the president was dealing with at the time he was sitting down for this interview. But the same uh, kind I'm of judgment was not made. I'm going to rudely interrupt you, Mike, because the president, the president is approaching the podium. Hey, everyone, it's MSNBC's Chris Hayes. For the first time since 1892, we have an election in which both candidates have presidential records. It's a chance to take a hard look at what Joe Biden and Donald Trump have actually done as president. On a special Why Is This Happening podcast series called With Pod 2024 The Stakes, I'm talking to experts about the two candidates' records on specific policy areas like immigration, taxes, climate, and more. So you know what's at stake come November. Search for Why Is This Happening and follow. 